You're listening to the greatest multifamily investment advice show. My name is Adam Ross, and now I'm talking everything multifamily for an in-depth conversation, and I will be diving deep into raising capital, deals, and underwriting process. Welcome back to the greatest multifamily advice show. Today we have Sandhya Shadri, real estate investor syndicator with more than 40 years in real estate syndication in Dallas market. Help me to welcome our guest today. How are you? Doing great. Thank you so much for having me on your show and appreciate your patience as we worked out some technical <laughs> difficulties here. Thanks so much for being with us today and I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, Sandhya, before we start on syndication, all, all of this fun stuff, I would like to speak about how you get in on syndication, especially with all of this. It's a, it's a, it's a team sport. You have to build your brand and have a network. How you started? I started first by joining a mentoring program that a friend told me about because, you know, my background is in engineering. So I worked the corporate rat race like many of us. But I also got a part time MBA at that time because I wanted to figure out business and financial decisions. And so um, that's where I joined investor clubs and went into the stock market. But then my husband and I were making more money than and we needed a tax advantage. So I was looking at real estate, but I found that single family rentals, et cetera, didn't have quite the margins that I was looking for. And I really wanted something that didn't you know, require the four headaches of a landlord, you know, the mm-hmm. tenants, toilets, trash and termites. So that's why I stayed away from it. But when a friend told me that you could do multifamily where you're a high level asset manager and you employ a property management company to do all of that day to day hassles for you. Uh, it made sense. And so I attended a weekend event by my mentor and then joined right away and found my partners there. And I've syndicated several deals since then with various people within that group. But I think you have a really good example is that nothing is impossible. You had like 1500 units in four years. That's, that's like just great uh, progression and, and syndication. Do you think it was scary for you to acquire all of these units and such a period, such short uh, period? Actually, I'm one of the slow pokes in my group. There's <laughs> a lot of people who do that many units in one year. Oh. Um, the thing is, my progress is a little bit slower in the sense that I first wanted to be what you call a passenger in a plane. So I started out by investing passively in other people's deals using my retirement money. And then I became what I would call as a co-pilot where I would be a co-sponsor with other experienced sponsors. And mm. that's where I started back in 2019. And uh, when COVID hit, my sponsors were out of state, my co-sponsors. And I ended up doing a lot of the asset management work where I learned the tricks and I saw it come to life. You know, everything that you read in theory, do this and do this and interior upgrade this and you'll get this much of a rent bump. All of it came true. People were happy to live in that apartment. That first deal was a huge success. And it gave me the confidence to be a lead sponsor. So I am now the pilot of my aircraft, so to speak. And so I bring in newbies and I'm a lead sponsor. And now I've got two deals that have gone a full cycle and I've got six others that are still active. We're trying to sell one. So it's been a fantastic journey on the active uh, general partnership side, but I still invest passively because I've got retirement funds. I've got more than 3000 doors, I think on the passive side from investing in other people's deals. Amazing. Uh, regarding your market and the South, the South East and Dallas, Dallas market, uh, we were talking about how you, you, you know, all of the areas and, you know, and you're really comfy with, with Dallas market. Can you tell us more about the, why Dallas? What is the strong uh, market fundamental about Dallas? 
everyone like to go on on in Texas, especially because of the market fundamental and the different asset classes. So why Dallas in your in your perspective? So the primary things you look for in a market when you go into real estate is number one, it's a, is it a landlord friendly state? Because then you get more of these rent control and eviction moratoriums and those kind of things. So you want to feel that the least. So you want to give yourself as much of a tailwinds as you can in terms of propelling you faster. So um, Texas is a great market for that. So are some of the Sunbelt states like your Arizona's, Atlanta's, et cetera. Within that, the reason I picked Dallas is it's a very large metro with a very diverse population, job growth, et cetera, and employment base. So we're not reliant on just one industry for the economy. Hmm. Um, you can also see the migration patterns that happened since COVID hit in the last three years. People are all migrating towards these states and away from your West Coast and your East Coast. So the population growth, economic growth, um, diverse employer base, almost every week we hear of one more company either expanding or moving its headquarters to specifically the Dallas area. There's a semiconductor boom along the Northern corridor. There's a, you know, um, there's a Four Seasons Hotel in Irving, which is two miles from two of my properties. And they are getting converted to a Ritz Carlton with like a $65 million renovation. Uh, there's a Caterpillar relocated its headquarters after 100 plus years in Illinois to Irving, Texas. So again, you look at all these specific suburbs of uh, Dallas and they're just expanding like crazy. Um, and then the other fundamental you want to look for is low crime. Mm. You want to have a high median household income. Mm. So whatever is the maximum rent you plan to charge plus the future rent pumps, you want to make sure you have a nice 3x factor uh, for the median household income. So let's say the maximum rent I'm going to charge is $1,500 times 12 puts me at $18,000. So times three is 54K for a median household income. You want to make sure the areas you pick have that household income to support the rent bumps you want to do. So if the median income there is only 36,000, that's going to be too low. So that's another fundamental we look for. And so we have that just because of such economic improvements happening in Dallas, you can see the gentrification happening. Now, I've lived here locally for 32 years, so I'm driving around the Metroplex all the time. I can see, you know, old buildings, old uh, shopping centers, getting facelifts, getting new renovations, and there's always something new happening. And there's not a single drive I've ever done, I think, in the last decade where I don't see some kind of construction happening. So those are all very positive signs, huge highways getting built, um, it's just priceless to see this happening in the last three decades. Uh, cities come to life, boom towns happening. So, I mean, you've got to see it to believe it. I, I understand this. I think my only question about Dallas, and because you're an expert on your market, is I see a lot of syndicators uh, as moving to the class A and class B because it's a, an, the actual spread on a cab rate between a C and, and a B product became really narrow and uh, the actual challenges of the maintenance and insurance is an actual factor on especially on the southeast how you see this on dallas market especially with the cap rate compressed between b and c products i think you really have to take it on a case-by-case -case basis um there are, i have a couple of class c properties that are maintained so well that are in such excellent condition that we're looking to do a long-term hold on those. We mm. love those properties, right? And at the same time, I've also had my share of class C where there's a lot of deferred maintenance that is required. Mm. So you want to plan for that capital. That's why a thorough physical due diligence is important. And you always want to be well flushed with capital. 
on um, older properties because you never know what could break down, what yes. standards could change. You could have a plumbing leak, et cetera. So I see that you have to look at it on an individual basis. Are the rents at that property far below market rents? So you truly have a value add rather than you speculating that, oh, I'll just put a stainless steel fridge and I think I can get a $100 rent bump. That may not happen because people may not be willing to pay for that. So you really have to study your local comps. So which is the comparative properties within a one mile radius. I like to visit them instead of just looking at some data from CoStar or other reports. I personally visit the comp properties before I make an offer. So I truly know what the subject property has as its, you know, uh, challenges as well as its potential compared to its nearby properties. So I don't have a blanket rule as such. It's on a case by case basis. I know the price per door for a location like say Plano, Texas or Irving, Texas versus, you know, South Dallas is a location I would not consider. So hmm. um, yes, in general, as a general rule, yes, the newer the property, the better. Hmm. But at the same time, is there room to grow your rent? Like A class, I would be a little more concerned if there's a lot of new construction and development happening. You would want to keep in mind, you know, a lot of high tech companies and layoffs are happening. So can they afford to keep their rents, et cetera, right? Versus, you know, so I think B is a sweet spot for sure. I was just trying to ask you this exact question. What is the sweet spot for you? Is it B or C? B would be ideal and select C's depending on the level of maintenance and how much of a value add is left in them. And uh, I particularly like Freddie loans for that because you mm. raise all the CapEx yourself. You're not depending on a lender draw because then you have to reallocate your money between different buckets. If, you know, a maintenance like, oh, I have to repair the parking lot. It's going to cost me, you know, $100,000 instead of just 50. And you have to, again, get lender approval. So I love Freddie fixed rate loans. That's what we did on two of our deals last year because one, we raise all the CapEx ourselves. We control how much money is spent. And, you know, we as a sponsorship team can decide on a weekly basis if we want to change it, hmm. change where we want to spend our CapEx dollars. Um, Freddie fixed rate also allows you to lock in the rate well ahead of time, which is what we did on two of our deals. So you could do a good faith deposit and five, six weeks ahead of your closing, you can lock in the interest rate if you want. And that helped us tremendously because on two of our deals, we got like 4.5 and 4.8% interest rates. Uh, which is considered really good when you look at Correct. fixed rate for 10 years, yeah. five years of IO. We got between 65 and 72% LTV. And it's just, uh, you know, that's an example of where you control your CapEx hmm. and you're not depending on lender approval each time or lender draws to fund those things. When was this deal? Because this is really good, 4.8 and 72% LTV. Yeah. Is we closed October 7th. It's a property in Irving. So October yes. 7th of 2022. The other deal, we closed July 29th of 2022. And both these properties are in Irving, Texas. So the 4.5% interest rate, I think we locked it in sometime in um, early June or something like that. Mm. And then the other one, again, we locked it like six weeks prior to that October date. And it's, it's fixed too. Yeah, it's fixed fixed, rate. Whoa, fixed okay. rate, Freddie Mac, with a step-down prepay. So you pay a little bit extra so mm. that you get a step-down instead of that yield maintenance penalty, you know? Yeah. So that if somebody assumes the loan, you don't even have that step-down prepay penalty. But if they don't assume the loan and they want to get new debt because interest rates are lower or for whatever other reason, then, you know, you're not stuck with a huge penalty that you got to pay that will reduce your overall returns. And it's going to make more sense on the, the loan side. Uh, mm -hmm. Regarding the, the actual market right now, we, we're waiting for the feds to uh, hike the interest, uh, hopefully by mm -hmm. 25 BPS by fe February 1st. And I think yep. a week. Uh, 
and every one sink it's a buyer market in dallas how you see the actual seller's expectation and if it's actual the cap rate is um, it's uh, it's been impacted so far or still you see an actual uh improvement is gonna come on the next six months uh, especially with the new couple of interest rate hike on February and March? I'm seeing the gap narrow more because at the beginning, uh, you know, sellers were expecting a really high price for their properties and buyers could only afford to get it at this price. So that gap was pretty wide. Now I see it narrowing more because mm. not only am I looking at properties to acquire, I'm also trying to dispose of properties, right? Mm. So in both cases, I'm seeing that gap narrow I'm still seeing hard money day one on most cases. Hmm. I'm not seeing a lot of, you know, oh, you'll get hard money after I do my month of due diligence. I'm not seeing that. Hmm. Um, I think the most attractive properties based on location and a reasonable price are still going fast. Like uh, I still, you know, can see where I was trying to get in on a deal and they already had an offer better than mine and they were already got, you know, under contract. Hmm. So that's still happening if the property is good and the price is right. I do see more opportunities of distressed sales coming up because mm. there were a lot of bridge loans from two, three years ago. Like 2021 was a year of bridge loans, as an example. Mm. Many of them only got um, two years on their rate caps. Some mm. of them didn't get rate caps at all. And so now they're losing money every month because their mortgage payment has gone up by 40, 50K per month. Yeah. And there's no profits to investors. The NOI is insufficient to cover the mortgage. So the lender is starting to take control of, you know, their lockbox. And uh, sometimes if they involve private equity in their uh, equity structure in purchasing the property, what's happening is those companies are forcing the sale by the general partners. So yeah. um, I'm expecting a lot more distressed deals to happen this year, meaning they're going to be having to sell it at a much lower price than what they'd have gotten a year ago for it. So a lot of the initial assumptions were, oh, interest rates are going to remain the same forever, right? Like <laughs> yeah. in 2021 kind of rates. Yeah. And we really got a big shock from 2022 and all the rate hikes. So I'm anticipating um, cap rates to increase and for distressed sales to be good bargains for us in 2023. I think what I like about my guest, all of us has the same idea about it. Everything is going to happen at the third quarter of 23, waiting for the distressed properties because of the bridge loan. Uh, we, I think, that, as you, is that uh, the market is going to settle on, on the third quarter and you're going to find all of this opportunity on third and end of the year of 2023. But far from this, going back to your syndication journey and uh, starting your brand and working with the investor, what was the actual uh, upside of all of the process, including uh, dealing with passive investor, uh, handling objections? What was your, your experience? Was it's as I mentioned, as a team sport, is not you only. What was your uh, experience with this whole process? So when you talk about raising capital from investors, yeah. um, in my case, I was very good at that because I had already invested as a passive investor. Mm. And that gave me the credibility. And I only started with friends and family. And my first deal, I barely raised any money. That was not my focus. Mm. But once I paid to get into some masterminds and read more books, et cetera, where you completely shift the focus from you to how you add value to somebody else. Mm. Why should they stop investing in the stock market or whatever else that they're doing now 
to invest in multifamily and you share examples, the story comes to life. And then once you have a full cycle or two, the referrals, and especially if they're very good first and second deals, mm. the referrals come and that's where it becomes like a snowball effect. But at the beginning, you have to be patient. You have to look at it as what's in it for them. And you have to stop being salesy. And instead, you've got to plant seeds. And some seeds will sprout right away. Some others, it may take them a year or two, no matter how well they know you. And um, these, uh, you know, sources of capital come from the least expected places sometimes, you know, the people, you know, really well, like your, you know, your own siblings or cousins, et cetera, say, I know you, but I'm not going to invest in that. <laughs> Versus, you know, a random neighbor who said, oh, I didn't know you were in real estate. Sure, I'll invest and I'll tell you, you know, refer you to more people. So you never know where that'll come from. So plant seeds everywhere. Let people know all the time what you do. It's just like everybody knows that huh, you're an engineer working for, you know, some uh, high tech firm locally. It's the same thing. This is what I do now. It's no longer engineering. But, you know, the same principles apply because you still need thorough underwriting skills. You need a lot local market knowledge and you need a team to support you in terms of things that are not your strengths. So find people with complementary strengths, right? So you round out your team. And then, of course, your uh, you know, support team of you know, syndication lawyers and accountants and um, property management, of course, cost segregation, all the good stuff that we do to complete because this is a large purchase, right? We're talking $20, $30 million and up kind of purchases. So uh, my next question will be about uh, after this journey on four years, how you see your strengths and superpower on real estate? I definitely, the local market expertise is what helps me save a lot of time. I love to underwrite. So even if a friend brings a deal, I have to independently underwrite it. Mm. Um, I like asset management because I'm pretty detail oriented, but I am ready to you know mentor newbies. So when I take on newbies, I give them specific projects and they'll go scope the work and come mm. back and report. So I'm more making decisions rather than doing all the CapEx myself. Um, raising capital, I think, is something no one can shy away from. I think every team member has to contribute. Your leverage is getting lower on deals, and uh, it's harder to um, get investors' mindset around um, investing in real estate because it's more longer term. These tend to be five, six-year kind of investments, hmm. and it's illiquid. So there's more investor hesitation. So I don't think anybody can stay away from raising capital. But then again, if I raise capital from investors, I'm a control freak. So I've got to have a say in the asset management and decision making post-closing for the next five years. So I, I do a little of everything. I don't just do one role. But depending on the strengths of my team members, I can do a little less of something and a little more of something else. I think you mentioned uh, uh, one of the main subject here is raising capital. And I, I would like to ask you about your experience with a private equity fund, especially with the last year. It was like, it's really the LTV was uh, an, an, an a big subject. Um, a lot of passive investors was shy. And one of the options was private equity fund to be like a second um, debt on the properties. What was your experience with private equity fund in, in general? I've spoken to many different companies and depending on the terms, they vary. It's like the wild, wild west. Some <laughs> are very reasonable and some want everything. And, you know, they're like, well, I'm bringing money. So that means I rule this world kind of attitude. So it oh. has varied a lot from all the different firms I've spoken with. Mm. Um, and so what we wanted to do as a first step was take a smaller amount from them. Most of them want to write at least five and $10 million kind of checks. 
And we went with a very small check, much smaller than that, mm. just to have like a, you know, dip your toes in the water kind of feeling so that they are only involved in a major capital event decision. Mm. And that's only if uh, the property has six months of failing DSCR, et cetera, because mm. we like to be in control. And if that means we do smaller deals and that's okay, mm. we were just very hesitant to give up control. So if the private equity firm, let's say we had to raise $10 million and they wrote a check for seven or $8 million, then they're going to want to have a lot of control. And we didn't want that. So that's still my con comfort level right now. Um, that could change. Another thing is private equity firms like to see you as a vertically integrated company with the same partners. And because I'm in a large mentoring group, I've done deals with different sets of partners. So yeah. I don't have like one company, the same two or three people, all vertically integrated, kind of the formula, if you will. So, and I'm not sure I'm going to go that way because it's a lot of work to run your own property management company. So I'm investigating it, but from everyone who's done it that I've heard from, it's a huge monumental task of its own. Yes. And so the other way to do it is, can you own a percentage share in another PM company without you mm -hmm. know you having to do all of the work? So you know okay. those are all negotiable things, but that seems to be the flav flavor for private equity firms. Uh, I like the show today. We had a lot of information about Dallas. And my final question is, how the people can reach you and follow your success? Um, LinkedIn and Facebook are probably the best platforms to find me. My company is Engineered Capital. So engineered-capital.com uh, is a good way to reach me. And if I can put in a little plug for a book, I'm co-authoring a book with several famous authors, including uh, Tom Ziegler mm. um, and uh, Kyle Wilson, et cetera. And it's on Amazon. It's called Next Level Your Life. So if you search on Amazon for next level, you'll find the book and I would appreciate your support. And there's a lot of bonuses included with that purchase. Thanks for so much for being with us today. And we're really happy to bring you again to the show. Thank you, Adam. This was wonderful. Thanks a lot. <laughs>